Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Fit for Prosperity podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. For today's episode, I interviewed Amy Dong. Amy just released her first book, 21 Years Young, in which she shares essays about her life, mainly her eating disorder and the near-death experience she went through, um, and all the lessons that she learned from it, which is super inspiring. And I think, uh, especially for people that struggle psychologically or even had eating disorders as well, they will be able to identify and um, learn a lot from that. But for everyone else, I'm sure also like all the lessons she had learned, she supervised for such a young age are extremely valuable. And this was an extremely fun interview. We both enjoyed it a lot, loved a lot. So uh, it's a fun listen. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. If you do so, please make sure to subscribe to the show. It would really mean a lot to me. And leave a written review telling me what I'm doing well and what I can improve on as I'm always trying to improve the show. Thank you so much and now enjoy the show. Amy, just introduce yourself, tell us what you're doing and yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Hi, Lucas. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Um, it's a privilege to be here. So as Lucas said, my name is Amy. I'm the author of a collection of personal essays entitled 21 Years Young, which is about all the uncertainties of growing up, um, including, you know, what it means to go through a near-death experience, what it means to understand health, mental health, physical health, all of that. And, you know, what are the different paths you can take as a person uh, trying to find your path in the world. So some things I've recently been up to, I just returned from Taiwan, teaching English there on a Fulbright grant. And before that, I was studying at NYU, um, doing economics and sustainable business. And I traveled to 25 countries in two years, which was one of the most amazing and unexpected way for me to actually understand myself in this world. And now I'm actually working for my publisher. I have my own freelance business on the side, sort of like Lucas does. And I try to work with young adults to empower them and help them figure out what they want to do with their lives. I, I really feel like as someone who's sort of almost lost her life, I, it's more important than ever for me to really, really figure out what are my values and how can I sort of pay that forward for the next, next group of people. That's, that's awesome. Um, so you also get really personal quick here in the interview, the same way as in your book. Um, you talk about <laughs> your near-death experience. Usually that's something you say like when you introduce yourself, no? <laughs> um, but so you came back from Europe, you did a semester abroad there. That's where the whole book starts, right? And you're like this world explorer, the way you also present yourself here now. But then in just a couple of days, you change to being like, or you get diagnosed with um, eating disorder. You're very malnourished and doctor tells you you're almost dead. Like, how was that for you? Just walk us through that process when you actually got back to the U.S., yeah, that's a great question. You're right. I guess most people don't start off saying that they almost died, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it's something that's really defined how I live now. But I came back from Europe feeling like I was on top of the world. You know, I was just this student who had traveled to 11 different countries, lost her wallet three times, but but still survived. And my sister took me to see a dietitian because she said, you know, Amy, you seem a little bit 
too skinny. Um, you told me that you hadn't had your period for two years. So we really need to get that checked out. And I was like, okay, you know, um, I probably want a family one day. Like, let's go just see a doctor. And she immediately, after listening to my story, was like, I think you need to see a physician because I think you have something that we call anorexia nervosa. And at first I was like, there's no way I have anorexia. You know, I see all these people um, on online who have anorexia and like, I look nothing like them. But then I went to see a physician and she said, Amy, your heart rate is 39 beats per minute, which is, you know, you should be in the ICU right now. I, I don't know how you haven't had a heart attack yet. And she told me I was lucky to be alive. And I think the world, it was very much an, a movie moment where it just zooms in on my face and it's just, I'm just like in shock. Um, and I ran out of the room crying. I was, I was so distraught. I didn't believe her. I was in denial. And I was like, there's no way, you know, I take such good care of myself. I know what being healthy means. I know what it, you know, uh, I know how to eat properly, but I was taken out of school that semester and I had to spend the whole half year um, in recovery, which basically meant relearning how to eat, um, learning the concept of intuitive eating, uh, relearning what it meant to nourish myself, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. And for anyone who has an eating disorder, they know that it's not, it's never about the food. It's, it's always about something deeper, um, psychological or physiological that's that's sort of stressing them out or making them think that they need more control in their lives. And it manifests itself as, you know, either not eating enough or eating too much. Um, but that whole process within that one semester, I, I gained like 20 pounds in physical weight, but uh, it sounds a little bit cliche to say, but I, I lost all of that and more in terms of mental weight. And it's something I still struggle with to this day. And I'm really open about talking about it, but uh, it really made me realize, you know, you only have one body, you have one life, and it's really important to treat yourself with kindness. And even though I struggle with it now to, to this day, it's it's something that I can catch myself doing when I see a red flag and I'm like, okay, you know, what is actually causing this? It's not that I don't want to eat. It's that maybe I've been working too hard or maybe um, I'm feeling too many expectations or I should just get more sleep. So that's, that's sort of how I've translated that experience into what I do now. <laughs> so you would say the cause of that is something very internal, right? Which is kind of... Eating disorder is such a broad or widely discussed topic right now. And we often bring it um, in connection with external pressure. So social media, like being bullied at school, you also said, or write in the book that you were overweight as a kid. So do you mm -hmm. think um, that external pressure does is more like a reason on the, not a real reason, right? It's just what uh, an, an excuse for it. Or do you think um, that plays an important role or played an important role for you too? Yeah, that's another great question. I'd say there, I think any dietitian or physician or anyone who works in health would say this, but it's a combination of both your personality and your intrinsic behaviors, but also your environment. So for me, I naturally am quite a type A neurotic person. I'm really <laughs> good at uh, self-control. So, you know, if I say I want to work out every day for for 30 days, I can do it without too much issue. But 
at the same time, my environment was such that I felt a lot of um, pressure growing up in dance to, to look a certain way. I, I did grow up um, relatively overweight. So that sort of played a negative effect on me. And you're so right. Social media has massively changed the game of, you know, especially young women's perceptions of themselves. And if you read any book on eating disorder now, they will most likely tell you that, you know, they'll, they'll lay out some statistics, like 95% of people diagnosed with eating disorders are women. Um, it's the most fatal physiological disease. So people who have eating disorders as opposed to any other um, mental health illness are, are more likely to pass away from it. And it, they're really, really serious. But what is sort of above that is how we perceive ourselves in, in society. And in the past, we'd only see the people right around us. So if, if there was like one beautiful person or, you know, society's dictated standards of beauty were a certain way, it'd be like, oh, you know, it's okay. There are only 10 people around me that I can sort of choose between. But now we have instant access to all of like these hand-picked and usually Photoshopped or, or really rare ideas of beauty, but it's so easy to feel like that is normal. Um, and that's definitely, definitely been a part of my, my eating disorder journey, I would say, but also a lot of other women and men's, they just, social media is a beautiful thing. It can also be really harmful at times, but I'm sure everyone, we all, we all know that at this point. <laughs> so what you would say, it's more like your internal psychology that through then the social media and your environment gets to play out like that. So it's kind of a combination of the two factors. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, and then one point I want to get back to is you said like you, cry, uh, you were crying, you were running out, you write that you really didn't want to believe what's happening. And mm -hmm. I mean, we all know if we have a problem to solve it, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge, acknowledge that there is a problem, right? Exactly. Um, was there a very specific moment when you realized, fuck, yeah, I have a problem. Or was that more of a slow process? Um, walk us through that, how you came to acknowledge that, yeah, I'm, I have an eating disorder, I need to do something. And then maybe also what could help people that's with uh, real life? Yeah, that's another great question. It was definitely a moment where I was at my lowest point and thinking, you know, why am I here? What's, what's wrong with me? I think that's unfortunately what a lot of people with eating disorders tend to think like, what's wrong with me? What do I need to do? And just hearing my physician sort of talk me through all the things that I was doing that are pretty weird. I was like, you're so right. This is a problem. Um, I was really good at hiding it, but it's not like people with eating disorders are dumb in a sense, like they don't understand what's happening. It's just so easy to convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing. For example, uh, my eating disorder started, or I started exhibiting, you know, behaviors of an eating disorder my third year in high school. Um, and it included everything from exercising at least one to two hours a day to counting the number of blueberries I was putting in my yogurt in the morning. And I I basically knew the calorie count of every single food that I was eating. I kept track of everything. And when I, I weighed myself like three times a day and when, when the number was not something that I wanted to see, I would get really, really stressed out. 
Um, and I also, as I mentioned earlier, like I lost my period for two years. That's not normal under any circumstances, but I convinced myself that it was because there were stresses in other areas of my life that were causing that behavior. But of course, putting those all together, it was very, very obvious that this was, um, this was caused by an eating disorder. But what an eating disorder does, it's like this little guy in your brain that's, it's a coping mechanism. And they're saying, you know, we're trying to help you, but it's, it's so good at convincing you that they're, they're the helper, that it takes, it takes a lot of um, personal sort of acknowledgement, but also usually a professional person, like a dietitian or a physician to just sit you down and be like, um, let me tell you, you know, your heart has shrunk, your thyroid is very small, your skin is basically orange because you've eaten too many carrots in your life. And just hearing all those things, I was like, wow, there really is, there really is something here. Um, so it was a combination of those two that helped me. <laughs> um, you talked uh, about the therapist and the session that you had talking you through it. And when we talked the first time, you, you told me that one question that she asked and that actually really sticked with me. I've been thinking about it a lot for myself. And it was, um, if you feel better when you're skinnier than other girls, um, how, how would you answer that question? And what has that, um, what has that done to you coming to that awareness? Yeah, it was, it was a, beautiful moment of reckoning where I had to admit to myself I had a superiority complex and to be honest I I still kind of do it's something I'm working on every single day um but it's that idea of yeah I feel like I'm a better person when I see someone and I'm like I'm so much skinnier than they are and that was so painful to admit because I was like oh I I want to be you know, I want to be a nice person. I don't want to have all these unconscious biases, but of course everyone does. It's like when people say that they're not a racist or they're not a sexist, but to be honest, I think everyone is racist. Everyone is sexist just in ways that they might not even know uh, because it's a very systematic thing. We're, we're, we're raised in cultures that just have different ideas of different people. And for an eating disorder, it really showed me how susceptible I was to outside expectations and standards of beauty. Um, because we all know in the past, you know, people who were slightly overweight were actually seen as the more beautiful because they were richer, they were more well off. And now it's it's changed. Uh, but it's, again, it's, it's one of those things that I'm working on to, to understand very objectively that it's not our weight that defines our value. And that's, that's something so easy to, to say, but something so hard to internalize, um, especially when we're in this sort of generation of diet culture, fad culture, um, workout culture, and and yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I have been thinking about it. I mean, obviously I train a lot, right? So when I'm, for example, at the beach, I was like, damn, I look at other guys as well. And when I'm like, more athletic looking than them i kind of feel better um yeah. right so i'm like man is there something bad i've never been thinking about that you know because in some ways i see like you work hard um so there is some pride coming with it and that's probably yeah. good um 
but if it gets touchy, it gets a problem. So, um, yeah, what would you say? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And it's, it's so awesome, you know, to take care of your body and to work out and to achieve, you know, something that you like. And I think it's very natural to feel pride. Like you worked hard for it. You, you can't, you can't get a, you know, six pack just by sitting on the couch and eating potato chips all day. So it's, it's something that's hard to do for sure, but you're right. It does. I think it only becomes a problem if, if that ends up clouding your, um, your actions towards other people in terms of, you know, treating other people in any way that's worse or different than people who look like you. I've definitely been, I, you know, I I've done that kind of thing before. I'm not proud of it, but it's, it's something that you have to admit to yourself. And another thing is, yeah, when making those snap judgments, it's, it's totally normal. It's totally human, but being able to say like, oh, you know, it's just a snap judgment. Let me not actually place any value on that when I'm getting to know someone or, or seeing someone in a, in a new light, but yeah, feeling proud of yourself for, <laughs> for working out. That's, that's awesome. You know, <laughs> but for you, then it has more become a problem because you got obsessive with being skinnier than everyone. Right. So even yeah. if a girl wasn't overweight, you needed to be skinnier to feel good. Yeah. It was a competition with myself. I think that's what every eating disorder is. It's there's mm -hmm. never a bottom line. Like I can say, you know, if I'm, once I'm a hundred pounds, then I will stop. That's never true. Cause I hit a hundred pounds and I still wanted to keep going. And it was, that's terrifying to me to think about now. <laughs> yeah. But it kind of makes sense. If you set yourself goals, with these specific numbers it's like the people that are like yeah you know when i earn a hundred thousand a year i'm gonna be happy and then of course they're not going to be happy they want to have the next promotion earn exactly. more exactly exactly that's a great analogy so i think like yeah <laughs> setting yourself goals just sets you up to um go for the next higher goal once you reach it and um especially if you do it for something that can get unhealthy that can be a problem right mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm sure there was more um, interesting questions and stuff you have been talking about with your therapist. So um, I'll just ask like that. Is there like a great question she asked you that really made you think or some specific session you remember that moved the needle for you? Yeah, there were not necessarily questions. They were more pieces of advice uh, that, and I would say, there were two that really stuck out with me. The first one, she told me, Amy, no one cares about you as much as you think they do. And at first it's like, ouch, you know, are you, are you saying I'm an unimportant person? But in reality, it's, it's so true. You know, everyone has their own struggles that they're working through. Everyone is caring about what other people are thinking about them and their focus on themselves. And so if we really think about it, if, if no one cares about me as much as I think they do, then it's, it's a very freeing idea of like, oh, I don't actually have that many expectations on me. They're, they're self-imposed. And furthermore, if no one cares about me as much as I think they do, that just goes to show me there are other things that I can work on um, that don't require other people's you know, admiration or, or praise. And it, help me realize, you know, 
no matter what I do for myself, everyone will always be doing things for themselves. And that should give me the freedom to do what I like to do and what I want to do as opposed to living my life for other people. Um, so it was a moment of humility for sure. And something that also sort of resonated with me was when she said, you know, the only times people will care about you a lot are one, if, you know, if they just, if they love you dearly and you're someone that's so important in their life that they, they can't live without you, that's obviously one. But another one is if they need something from you. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a, you know, I care about you because there's something that you have that I want. And she's like, if it's, if it's through an eating disorder, then sometimes you end up attracting other people who exhibit those same, same, you know, behaviors, which clouds your ability to think like, is this normal, which is why you have to really understand intuitive eating. Like, what does it mean to be full? What does it mean to, to keep your body healthy and happy and full of nutrients? And one other thing that she always told me was, are you like, what are you afraid of? And what do you want to do? And she'd always just say like, your motto for the week should just be fuck it and go do it. Um, and that, that was verbatim what she said. So apologize for the language, but it was like, it was in the moment I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. Like if I want to eat a donut, like I'm going to go do it. I'm not going to eat a donut every day, but I'm going to go do it. And I mean, not just around food, but around everything, like around mm -hmm. career stuff too. You know, if, if you see something that you think is a pipe dream, make it not a pipe dream, like go take the steps to make that work. And of course it, everything takes hard work, but if you sort of have that mentality of fuck it, go do it. Um, you are more likely to take the risks that will one day, you know, make you, make you a more well-rounded and more thoughtful person, maybe not necessarily happier if, if those risks don't pan out and you fail, but you, every failure is, is a, is a way that you can learn something more. Um, and I, I fully, fully believe that I failed so many times in my life and uh, it's just made me a little bit more grounded in terms of what I want to do now. There's one really interesting thing that you touched on and those were the expectations of others, right? So mm -hmm. for you, it was definitely a big thing, I guess, with the eating disorder so that you're the feeling you needed to fit the expectations of society, be super skinny and all that, that then got very obsessive but did you also struggle with expectations of others when it comes to the way you're living your life especially like what you study um your career choices um or was was it there never really a problem and you always did what you just like to do uh you you should be my therapist lucas because that's actually <laughs> That's something that I still think about every day. Uh, my, my parents immigrated from China with $200 in their pocket, literally. And they, they created their own version of the American dream, which is something that's so, so hard to grasp now. And people are saying, you know, there is no such thing as the American dream. They started their own company here. They, they raised two daughters and they gave, they gave us everything. And for me, the biggest expectation I feel like I have to live up to are from my parents. Um, which, which you write about in my book, I, I write a lot about, you know, what my parents think of as a good life. But I also have to tell myself that if I live my life based on others' expectations, I'll not only end up being unsatisfied, I might end up being resentful of those same people that I respected and wanted admiration from in the first place. 
for example, let's say my dad wanted me to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company because to him that symbol symbolizes, you know, both status and material success or stability. But if I were really to go do that, and it's not something I intrinsically feel empowered or want to do, then I'm not only going to be unhappy sitting in an office where, where leadership is lonely and I'm doing all these things that don't speak to me, but I'll also end up looking at my dad and be like, you told me this would be a good life and it, and it isn't. So to me, honoring expectations of others is more just letting them sit there and I like realizing that sometimes they might be there and sometimes they're just figments of my own imagination, but still living in a way that's true to myself and living up to just my own expectations will, which ultimately usually uh, transform what other people think as well. For example, when I was writing my book, the first thing my dad said was, that's a waste of time. You know, you should be, you should be studying for, for a CPA or go be a CEO. And after I came out with the book, the first thing he will say to other people that he meets are, my daughter is an author. So there must <laughs> be something that's changed there that made him turn from it's a waste of time to it's something I'm proud of. And it, it was because I just decided not to listen to him in the beginning and still do what I wanted to do. And do you think that those therapy steps have helped you in, for example, being able to say, fuck it, I'm going to write my book. I'm not going to uh, study or become a CEO. Um, do you think that was helpful? Absolutely. I feel like I hear those pieces of advice in my brain every single time I'm trying to make a decision. Uh, it's also maybe something that's a little bit more unique to me. I'm not sure, but I, I have like this quote log in my, in my phone, <laughs> on my computer. And uh, it's, it's like my mantras that I hold very dear to me. Like my favorite one is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? It's from Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Um, when she was CEO of, COO of Facebook and just deciding, you know, like what she really wanted to do. And that's, that's something that's kept me going. Another one is to try to be the, the human embodiment of spring, which to me signifies hope and, you know, paying that hope forward to other people. And I, I love these, these quotes. Some of them are cliches, but they're only cliches because they're very, very true. And if you live them, you really, really feel them every day. So yeah, I would say my therapists um, definitely helped as much as I sometimes didn't want to go to therapy in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's so cool that uh, quote, um, what would you do if there was no fear? You're like the third person on my podcast that mentions that. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's such an empowering quote. Like, yeah. what would you do? <laughs> it's like something I always uh, try to remember for myself because, yeah, it's like people keep saying it to me when I'm like, podcasting there was so like there has to be truth to it and now i completely love it because it's it it is really empowering so um that's awesome uh now we got a little bit off track there's one thing that just as a nutrition coach i was super interested in asking you right yeah. from the get-go and that's so what you were super obsessive about foods right you were writing down everything and now when you had to get back into the intuitive eating, I mean, at the first time or in the first place, it was important to make sure that you eat enough. So probably you had to keep some locks of, mm -hmm. um, of what you're eating during your healing process. And I'm just very curious how that works 
because technically one should take away all of your logs that you're forced to uh, like eat intuitively. But at the same time, what then would have happened is you probably wouldn't have eaten enough. So how was that? Like, how does the, that process work? Yeah, it's um, it was like a game of tug and war, tug of war between me and my treatment team. I did indeed have, they were like, before you can go back into intuitive eating, we have to, you have to basically force yourself to eat enough. And it was physically painful because my stomach had shrunken so much. And I was, I was like, I just, I don't think I can eat what you want me to eat. But I did have a meal, a meal log that um, it was, it was through an app. Actually, I would basically type in and take photos of my food and send them to my dietitian every week. And there were some days where I just gave up and I was like, I can't do this. This is so annoying, but it was really telling because they would compare the photos that I took with the words that I was writing. And sometimes it'd be like, I ate like a huge plate of eggs and like giant pieces of toast. And they'd respond and be like, Amy, if you look at this photo, this is maybe like half of a serving and then like a quarter of a serving. So it was almost like they were, they were literally like reteaching me what is a balanced diet. And of course I had like the different food groups, like you have to have enough protein, you have to have enough fats, um, fats and oils and vegetables and fruits. And they would basically be like, make sure you eat like one cup of this, two cups of this. And in the, in my dietitian's rooms, she had life-size rubber molds of different types of foods. And she'd just be like, Amy, like pick up this, pick up the pork chop. Like that's like, this is the amount of protein that you need per meal and compare that to what you're used to eating. So for, it was like in every sense of the way I, I was retaught how to eat from like the visual aspect of it to like holding portion sizes to showing them photos and writing about it. Um, it was hard work. It was, and it was weird work because people who don't struggle with food related activities, like, of course, just, you know, just eat, but that's one of the worst. That's one of the least effective things that you can say to someone who's on either spectrum of um, yeah. eating spectrum, you know, binge eating, they also have to, you also have to relearn how to eat and honor your, um, honor your stomach's senses. And same with people who struggle with anorexia or bulimia. It's funny that you say you perceive that as hard work, but then in your book, you wrote like, you wrote down everything in my fitness poll when when you were like <laughs> deep in the eating disorder and back right. then it must have felt good to write down everything and now when it was going the other way suddenly it was a lot of work like how does that come <laughs> that's such a great point it felt more like work because it was not physical like food work it was the mental work of okay. everything i taught myself since junior year of high school is not just wrong it's detrimental to myself and i i always thought you know i took great care of my body um and it was the it was that mental switch of being like let me just relinquish my own power put it in someone else's hands and let them tell me what is right i hate letting other people tell me what is right sometimes because <laughs> i feel like i know but it taught me a lot of humility too and it was like i can be so wrong and not see it um, and this is one of the ways where I'm actively working on correcting that behavior. So you're right. It wasn't 
you know, it wasn't hard work to just take a picture of my food. It was hard work undoing everything that I had taught myself up until that point. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So then in the beginning, you were still forced to write down everything and like take um, take notes. Um, but then at some point, did you get rid of that? So are you now not writing down anything? You're just eating um, did that eventually work out or how is that looking yeah. now? Yeah, basically my, my treatment team would, every single time I went, they would weigh me, they would ask me what I'd been eating. They would do some blood tests to make sure everything inside was working properly. And at a certain point, they basically said, you know, Amy, you've sort of graduated. We, we trust you to trust yourself and, and eating your own food. And it's, it's been a little bit wobbly. Everyone with an eating disorder, every mental anyone with any mental health struggles will know this, but it's, it's never a straight line improvement. It's always sort of the curves, the ups and downs. And over time, you know, those waves, they, the ebbs and flows get more and more gradual and, and softer. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, when I was like, yes, I don't have to do this anymore. There would be some days where I was really good. Some days where I was horrible and uh, horrible in terms of, I, I didn't eat enough. Um, mm -hmm. But now I'm at a place where I'm, I can tell when I'm engaging in eating disorder behaviors and I try to catch myself as soon as I can. And I know that if I ever feel like I'm sort of slipping or uh, one of those ebbs and flows is a little bit too big, I can always go back, but it is something that improves over time. I can see it. And that that's one of the reasons why I can talk so openly about it. When I was first working through these things, I didn't tell anyone. I was like, I like people are going to think I'm, I'm so weird for doing this. And now I'm like, no, it, it's something that does need to be talked about so that people don't feel alone if they're going through the same things. Yeah. I think that's a very big thing with any mental disorder is everyone is kind of left alone because especially in our society nowadays, um, it's almost as if people that have mental disorders are deemed as weak you know, and no one wants to be weak. So it's super hard um, to open up and talk about it. And that's very, that's like counterproductive for everyone, because at least like for me, it was great when I was able to talk uh, about like feeling sad or feeling depressed. Um, and that was almost missing. I remember when I was going through depressions, I felt like I couldn't talk to my friends. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if everyone would be, more open about that i think it would help just to people that are actually in the midst of it getting out of it so i think it's very good that when we get through it and we actually make it public or maybe even before if you have the <laughs> if you have the courage but i guess that's hard when you're in the midst of a treatment um who did so you didn't tell tell anyone because you stayed in um in Boston with your family, right? Instead of going back to New York to university. What did you tell your friends? Yeah, that's a great question. I messaged, I called them individually and I, I was just crying and I said, I'm not coming back to school. This is why. And I think a month in or somewhere relatively close to the beginning, I, I did make a public post saying, you know, I won't be returning to school for some health reasons but I couldn't bring myself to say everything that I was doing until I came back and I wrote this really long blog post that ended up inspiring a lot of the essays in my book. 
about what exactly I was doing and, and why I, I actually needed to stay home instead of just like mm-hmm. some health reason, which could have been anything. But your friends on the phone, you said the full reason or did they also only know it's health reason? It depended on how close they were to me. The closest <laughs> of my friends knew exactly what it was because some of them, I mean, they, they knew me very well. And some of them apparently had actually called my sister when I was abroad to tell her that I wasn't eating enough. So for them, they, they knew. And okay. I told them, they were like, good, like you, 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 you needed to be in treatment. We just couldn't, we just knew if we, it came from us, you wouldn't listen to us. Um, and then to people that were slightly outside of that, I said, oh, just, you know, it's a health problem. <laughs> I'll work through it. <laughs> awesome. I mean, that's already good. I think when I was going through depression, I didn't even tell my parents. So <laughs> my mom knew my dad. I never told, or I never talked to him about it. So I think you were a, a lot more courageous to talk to your friends than even. Um, now, do you, you said it, you said it's like still coming in waves and going, it's just getting less extreme, but um, how would you say, do you still struggle with the condition? And do you think you can be at some point fully healed and it's just in the past or do you think it will always be a part of you? Great question. It is definitely something I still struggle with every day. Um, I think about it every day, but it's certainly gotten better. And my struggle is less so of dealing with the consequences of not eating, but more so dealing with the um, with the desire to, to not eat. But as soon as I catch that, I'm like, okay, what is the real reason I don't want to eat breakfast today? Is it because I'm actually not hungry? Or is it because I'm I'm busy with something, I'm stressed out, and I want to I want some control in my life? That's been a lot better. And that being said, eating disorders are take I think the average for the average person with an eating disorder it takes upwards of seven years before a full recovery. Hmm. I think I might be I think I might be beyond that average. I don't know from how things are going. I I don't know if I'll recover in seven years, but I do believe that one day in the future, I will be able to not look at myself in the mirror and say, wow, you're really hot. You're amazing. Like you have the best body ever, but just not think about it at all. And that is something very powerful that I learned about body positivity during my journey. It's, it's not about waking up every day and thinking that you have a beautiful body it's waking up every day and doing the things that you need to do and that you want to do without thinking about your body at all. Um, and just being grateful that you can do things at all. Um, and that, that was transformational because it was like, no, you don't have to be like, it's not about your body. It's about what your body can do. Like our, our physical bodies are really just vessels that allow us to do good in the world, impact people, have wonderful conversations, you know, raise a family, all of these things. And it's, it's nice if you have, you know, some aspects of physical beauty, uh, but it's, it's not the most essential part. So it's like um, getting your confidence from a different place that exactly um, that takes you step by step to, to get there. Um, oh, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> I think, I hope you can do that. <laughs> it's in, 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 and you seem to be quicker than seven years if I, at least from what I've been reading, you seem to be like 
very reflected and um, just being able to catch yourself whenever you have those thoughts, um, I think is, is, it's very hard. It's like, it takes a while to, to get there. And it seems like you got there quite quickly, but then it's, is it like an addiction? So, because it's like someone who with a drug addiction, it's kind of what I was thinking when you told me about uh, mm-hmm. that the thoughts are always returning. Is yeah. that the right way to, to imagine it? It is. Yeah. I feel like we rarely use, rarely use the word addiction um, in the treatment world, but it is, it is a kind of, it's a, we call it a coping mechanism where, mm-hmm. but, but addictions are coping mechanisms. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's like the gambler who knows deep down rationally that he shouldn't go back to the casino, but he does it because he feels like he needs that. Um, just like someone who is a binge eater, like needs to go on that next binge or someone who is an anorexia needs to skip her next meal. Um, it's, it's very irrational, but totally justified to that person at the time. And it's not until afterwards where they, they themselves are the ones who are like, okay, I need to make that change that it becomes apparent that it was something that was um, deleterious to their health. It's like our ego that keeps telling us that, no, no, that's normal. That's good. Or even in your case, that's healthy. I do that for my health, right? Um, So we try to rationalize and justify it. (laughs) Um, Before we get away from eating disorders, some other things in your book that I would like to talk about. But um, one last thing, especially, I guess, for young girls, but maybe also young boys that struggle with eating disorders. um, Do you have maybe one or two great tips, things that really have helped you that you would like to share? Yes. So the first thing is that, of course, just you are not alone. And actually you, if, if someone is listening out there who, who feels like they're struggling with their food, it's, it's difficult and it's, it can potentially be life-threatening, but the thing is you are not alone. There are so many other people who know how that feels. And the only way to really, you know, look it in the eye and say, I want to, you know, I want to get over this. I want to work on it is the, the self-seeking of, of treatment in the sense, like it's, it's so hard to listen to anyone else tell you that there's a way that you should live. But if you can look objectively at what you're doing and say, there's something interesting here, like there's something deeper down, that's, that's the most powerful thing to realize. The food is always the red herring. It's something more, more serious. Um, and it could be anything as serious as you know childhood trauma to something in social media that, that has just really influenced your perspective of the world. And the second thing is, is that piece that my my therapist had told me, which is no one thinks about you as much as you think they do, which sounds horrible at first, but in reality, it just means that, you know, there aren't that many expectations. You, you are free to do what you want to do. And that includes eating what you want to eat or, um, you know, acting on the things that you want to act on without someone telling you that you're beautiful or you're ugly. And that's like an objective truth. So those are two of the things that I would say. I mean, I like the quote anyway, because it's so relieving if you really think about it. It's, so uh, mm-hmm. it's a, it, Actually, it seems scary at the first because we always like to think that we're super important and have someone that 
thinks about you or everyone is like thinking about what we're doing when we're in past the train walking around in the city actually no one gives a shit and if you realize that it's like it's actually really relieving i i, I can see that it's very therapeutic <laughs> no, one, no one gives a shit that's that's really true <laughs> um so then one chapter i liked is and you have recommended it to me to read it when we stop being immortal mm-hmm. and um you talk about um that you realize that your time on earth is not infinite and i think that's super cool especially for someone who's so young as you are i mean I, i'm young myself but even like you're even more young and <laughs> as a big fan of the stoic philosophy where memento mori or remember death is like mm-hmm. a huge principle it just um i could immediately identify um how has this changed your life and what are you doing differently now um that you had this realization yeah so that that chapter that you just mentioned is inspired by atul gawande's book being mortal what matters in the end and it's about you know all these people in in geriatrics care elderly people who don't have a lot of time left in their lives but someone who's 21 years old in that book ends up getting into a car crash near death experience and she ends up in the hospital with all these older people and she she realizes that it's not age that matters it's it's perspective and how much time you think you have left so for me my friends sometimes joke that they think I'm a grandma but what they mean is that <laughs> i just think differently from a lot of people my age now and i i can see that but what that means is for example instead of thinking you know the world is my oyster uh the sky is the limit just do everything and you know you'll live for you'll live so long so just like do everything now instead sometimes i'm thinking you know like what if i don't have that long what if what if tomorrow is the last day you know what do i want to have done what do i want to have said to the people that i love so it's it would it has been a narrowing in of my perspective um i've i've sort of narrowed my friend circle in a way where i uh i'm that person that calls people i i don't actually like texting so um i'm the person in my friend group that's known to just call people out of the blue and say like hey i love you like hope you have a great day um i'm always the one who says like have a safe flight um and it's i hold more gravity in every single day uh and i i think about you know if this were my last day you know i need to make sure that i give my friend a hug or i need to make sure i tell my mom or my dad that i i love them and it's it's those it's the small things that have mattered more like the everyday comforts as opposed to one day i'm going to be a billionaire and i'm going to do like x y and z with in the world um and it's it's given me a little bit of comfort actually to think like that and it it sort of ties right into the no one cares about you as much as you think they do because in the end we all memento mori we all have to remember death we all get there and um sometimes i think you know if i like what what would really happen to the world if i passed away not much <laughs> um <laughs> other than other than my close friends and family you know um being a little bit sad but that has given me more confidence actually to per- pursue the things every day that i want to be doing and care about yeah so for you you say it's mostly um the little things in the day so i'm just appreciating the moment more um Absolutely. but how how would you look at it in the big scheme of things because for me it's also a bit um if you remember that you die 
that means um, you don't have time forever to achieve and do the things you really want to do. So it puts an urgency on, on achieving your dreams and actually also yes. a motivation. Because I think um, no one regrets being at work and climbing the corporate ladder for his entire life when he's old. Like what people regret is the stuff they didn't do. Um, and if you remember that one day you're going to die, you're like, okay, I have to do it now. So do you think like it has also in a macro perspective in terms of, um, yeah, I've run a write my book and you wrote it already at 21. I'm done for you. Or is it just a little, um, the momentary things that have changed? Uh, you're so, I feel like you're picking apart my brain in exactly the right ways. Uh, it's the small things, for example, my morning cup of coffee, mm -hmm. I can hear the birds chirping outside. Like that means more to me now. At the same time, macro's perspective, absolutely. Like, let's say I do live a couple more decades. I, I don't know when that will end. So yes, the things that I think are important, um, they matter more. Professionally, I always, I, I have, you know, this triad of things where I think, how I think about jobs. So a job is something that you do to pay the bills. A career is something that um, you're pretty good at and it also pays the bills. And then a profession is something that you're not only good at and not only pays the bills, but it's also something that you feel really inclined to do. You like it, you're willing to suffer for it and achieve greatness and sacrifice other things for. And for me, that profession is helping other young adults figure out what they want to do with their lives. And I I'm doing that now. Like I just started my own freelance business where I'm serving as a life coach for young adults. And we're, we work on like scholarship applications. Um, we write essays about, you know, what is your why? And it's, it's very holistic. Um, another thing I'm doing that I love is, is working for my publisher and working with first-time authors. Uh, my corporate job that I have back in New York doesn't know this yet, but, you know, maybe <laughs> at some point, I, I want to leave the corporate world and and pursue and pursue these things that are much more meaningful to me. And that is different for everyone, mm -hmm. of course. But for me, um, after teaching in Taiwan, I, I felt like it was a calling in the sense that based on my personality, based on my extroversion and the things that I've gone through in life, I really like mentoring people. I really like one-on-one -on -one interactions where I get to see someone grow and really champion them. And I know I'm really lucky at the age of now 22 to sort of feel like something is so important to me already. And I, I want to run with that. And I don't care what anyone else says. I don't care really about the expectations. Um, if I have to live out of a shoebox for a couple of years, because I'm not making a lot of money, that's actually fine with me. Um, but I'd rather stay true to, to those values that drive me and get me excited to wake up every morning. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it's cool. that. I wish I had that at 22 already. It took me a little bit longer. <laughs> but I think it's definitely the way to go. Like the happiness you get from what you call a profession is just so much higher than from what you get from a career. And yeah, I think it's good if you, especially like if you remember that your time's limited, I think that puts the urgency on it. So good to see, good to see. I'm curious to see where you're going. And I guess I hope your publisher, does, uh, not your corporate boss in New York doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> <Let's hope. laughs> um, 
And I mean, besides all the deep stuff in your book, you also have some, I would say, I mean, at least, I guess it was not fun for you when you were going through it. But for me as a reader, it was like brilliant entertainment. As you said it in the beginning, the story, how you keep kept losing your wallets and all your money, money stolen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just what's your favorite? I was wondering, what's your favorite essay in the book? What's your favorite story? Um, something that would tell people. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Wow, what is my favorite story? I think it might be the the title essay. So there's an essay in there called 21 Years Young, and I just go through snippets of my life where it's like sort of my reckoning with various different uh, people that I meet or, or things that I see. Uh, but I will say my, my parent, my mom and my sister were right. Some of my humor essays, my, my funny writing makes people laugh a lot more than my serious writing and they like it more. So for them, they would probably say one of those are their favorites. And of course, of course, the first essay, so it goes. And when we stop being immortal, um, they focus specifically on my eating disorder. And then they sort of extend that into what matters in the end. What is a good life? What is a meaningful life? And those are all questions that I'm answering myself and now I'm trying to help other people answer. So I would say those two. Awesome. Yeah, I like the first one as well that it, because it really touched me. But then after that, I was happy to read the second one, which is a little <laughs> bit more light and be like, oh yeah, <laughs> the in, what was it? Valent no, Barcelona, like the story oh, when God. you were <laughs> at the parade and stuff. I was like, Oh, actually, now I'm laughing again, you know, so <laughs> I, I actually like the diversity. Um, then one last question. I know you read a lot and I ask that every uh, guest on my podcast, uh, one or two books that you would recommend everyone to read that maybe you gave a lot as a present or that you just feel have changed your life. What would you recommend? Yeah, number one definitely would recommend reading Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. I love that. Yeah, he, um, if for those of you who are listening who don't know, uh, he's a Holocaust survivor who ends up um, really delving deep into the realm of psychoanalysis and helping people figure out what is, what is their purpose in life? How can someone in the worst of times where there is, seems to be absolutely no hope, how can someone still survive and and thrive in, in under those desperate conditions. And another book that I would recommend is Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. He is a brilliant you know, researcher and writer. And Anti-Fragile is basically the concept of what are the things that you can do that you know break you down, but breaking you down actually ends up making you stronger thus anti-fragile. So how, how do you build yourself up as a person, as an organization, as a company, as a brand, anything um, in a way that makes you anti-fragile? So when bad things happen, you actually take them and run with it. And it's, it's really well-written, really well-researched. He's a funny writer too. He kind of makes fun of his own research sometimes. Um, it's, it's a really fascinating read. Awesome. I think I've heard about it I haven't read it, but I think you're not the first one to mention it. 
Um, and I mean, men search for meaning. I've read it. That's amazing. I like it. But the other one uh, goes anti-fragile goes to my list. I guess I try to yes. read all the books that people recommend me, but it gets so hard because the the reading list just gets longer and longer and faster <laughs> than I can read the books. <laughs> So, Amy, thank you so much for being on. If uh, people want to find you, how can they find you? And um, where can they find your book? And yeah, just let people know how to reach out to you. Yeah, of course. So you can find me on my website at amy-dong.com. It has my bio, links for my book and everything. And if you just search 21 Years Young on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, um, any any bookstore that's near you, you should be able to find it and order it. But thank you so much, Lucas, for having me on. I really enjoyed this discussion. I feel like I just had a, a nice therapy session with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm glad it felt more like uh, something fun than, than, than a serious interview. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, and I'll make sure um, to link your book and your website in the show notes. So you can just click down there and get it. I definitely really recommend the book. It's a great read. I was really, I'm still, I haven't read all of it yet, I must admit, um, but I'm really enjoying it. So yeah, I recommend that you get it. And uh, thank you, Amy. It was a lot of fun. I actually had a lot of laughter in the podcast, really enjoyed <laughs> recording it. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. It would really mean a lot to me. And give me some feedback. Let me know what you liked and what you didn't like. I always try to make this show better, bring you the best possible podcast. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. And also, I would be happy if you follow me on Instagram at pt.lucas. And uh, reach out to me if you have any questions or if you have some guests that you would like to hear interviewed. I'd love that. Thank you so much and have a great day. Talk to you soon.